When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we are recording with Mr. Peter Dale Scott. And excuse me, my stomach's gurgling. Very rude of me. The author of The Road to 9-11, which is on Audible, as well as Kindle, paperback, hardcover. I'll put it in the description. It's a fantastic read, and I will get into why it was fantastic. And it has a very unique twist that I, I've read. I really love really Cold War 9-11 war on terror and the current state of things that's that's what draws me in and you had one of the more fascinating takes on 9-11 but before i get into that mr scott please introduce yourself to all the listeners well i'm a, i should begin by saying i'm a canadian a former canadian diplomat but very only four very short years after which i um I came to the University of California in 1961 for what I thought would be a one-year stint. And uh, to my surprise, uh, I've been there ever since, except I, I did go back to Canada when I was approaching retirement. Loved my three months in Toronto, but realized my kids were in California and uh, my my friends were in California, so I'm a, a green card alien in love with the country, less in love with the government, but I'm not as bitterly opposed to it as some people are. <laughs> and um, I'm the next thing I should insist is I'm a poet, and that particularly is true now that I'm 93. My sort of perspective on things is large and poetic rather than as detailed and specific and prosaic as some of the books that I've written, including The Road to 9-11. I taught English for um, 34 years at Cal and loved teaching it. Um, it was a bit ironic because I actually had never taken any English courses. <laughs> my, my PhD was in political science, but I guess in many ways I'm a border crosser not just the Canadian border. Um, and uh, that's probably enough about me. I think that's, I was going to say, uh, you uh, you are the oldest guest I've ever had on here. And I can also say that you you have more energy than a lot of younger guests <laughs> that I've had on here. So that I tip my hat to that. And for everybody listening, we talked briefly before we started recording about um, meditation and spirituality. And uh, that is already going to be our second podcast as we delve into that, because as much as I love the, as you said, the nitty gritty and the analytical view of history at 31, I'm not 93, but at 31, I can feel my own mind shifting to more of a poetic and trying to find the love in everything as opposed to just beating it, beating it all with a hammer and seeing what's bad in the world. And yeah, uh, you know, I really would encourage that because I th think one of the things that is wrong about the mindset, not just of America, but of the world today, 
is that we've gone so far in developing special sciences and foreign policy is in the hands of people, area specialists who devote themselves to knowing everything about the northwest corner of Pakistan. And what we're losing and we're certainly suffering from are people who take the large view because the large view cannot be scientific. It has to be, uh, you know, wisdom rather than knowledge. Wisdom is what you've forgotten, not what you remember. Um, and uh, I, I've spent the last decade, of my, my last book that got into detail really was a serious book, was the American Deep State in 19, uh, 2015. Since then, I've been writing, well, I've finished a biography of a poet, a Polish poet, Czesław Miłosz, who was himself a, a, an interesting study in spirituality, a devout Catholic who had major problems with the Roman Catholic Church in Poland, only really began to advertise he was Catholic when he was no longer in a country where the Roman Catholic Church was dominant, that is to say, the United States, because he had problems with the church in Poland, problems with the church in France, where he lived for 10 years. So that's my new kind of interest. And then uh, since then, I've written really a kind of history of, uh, of, I call it a history of enmindment, but it's, you could say it's a history of our cultural evolution, where I end up talking the way I'm talking right now. And uh, I've only, I, I'll it was going to be in three volumes, I'll never get beyond volume one, which makes the case that the Dark Ages was a time where civilization was corrected as well as lost. It was, a, in a way, a, a tragic cutting back, and people lived much more primitively. But new values emerged in the Dark Ages that could not have become dominant. Well, they grew out of the Roman Empire, but to, to really flourish, the Roman Empire had to fall. So in retrospect, I celebrate the fall of the Roman Empire and praise the Dark Ages for all their ignorance because there were developments in community, all kinds of developments. But this is the kind of vague overview that I indulge in now. I hope I can go back and still talk about the road to 9-11. I was rereading it for the first time this morning, and, <laughs> and I, I liked what I read, so I hope this will be a good interview. <laughs> I, every once in a while, I'll, I'll, I'll go back and listen to one of my early podcasts or something, and I'll be like, that's not half bad. It's not that bad. <laughs> well, that's um, what I was thinking this morning when I read this. I know I couldn't write it now. That's for yeah. sure. <laughs> you got to give yourself a little pat on the back. You're like, that yeah, wasn't yeah, happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, again, I think, yeah, we will have to, we'll, we'll have to, because I would love to go into that with you as well. I guess we'll have to save that for our next episode. The values coming out of the dark. I 100% agree in my own life, in my own, in my own struggles. I've, I've found uh, invaluable growth in the worst times of my life that in college, I, I mean, I sound like a broken record, but in college I was in perfect shape. I had a 4.0, got in a medical school, had a beautiful girlfriend, had the world at my fingertips 
after I graduated college, I lost my older brother to suicide. And for several years, I was depressed. I was doing drugs. I hated myself. I hated everyone around me. But now that that's eight years in the rearview mirror, I can say that I underwent growth in that time that I never in I would never do it because who would voluntarily go through that? But now that I have gone through it, through it, yeah. I, I've, I've grown and matured in ways that I can't read in a book that a therapist can't tell me that I can't find in a pill. It's yeah, maybe it's, the theologians who talk about the paradox of the fortunate fall. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the, the world had to be in sin if uh, yes. Jesus was going to come and give it a message for its, for its, remo- for its improvement. Siddhartha Gautama, right? The Buddha. His father was a was a was an incredibly wealthy merchant, and he raised his son in a walled kingdom of of prostitutes and food and gold and 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 silk and pillows and and warmth and everything he wanted because he wanted to he didn't want his son to ever feel pain and suffering. Right. And by and by twenty, Siddhartha was absolutely miserable, <laughs> and <laughs> you, you ha- and he went out and he fasted and he would eat a single peanut a day, or so the legend goes, and. uh through suffering he became enlightened but so as not to derail from the road to 9-11 because i think we both will i also noticed over your shoulder family of secrets by russ baker which i actually read about a month ago maybe two months ago for the first time so to get to road to 9-11 obviously there are all sorts of there are all sorts of takes on it you know from one level was just 19 hijackers who just got some box cutters to was it saudi arabian funded to did the U.S. government know about it and let it happen, to did the U.S. government orchestrate it itself. There are, there's ample evidence for all takes. But the reason why I specifically like yours, and I've read every take on 9-11 to my knowledge. Oh, that's a, that's a tall order. <laughs> it's, 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 it's to my knowledge. I'm, I'm probably going to get uh, my ego checked soon when I realize I haven't. But what I like about yours specifically is something that I am very interested in and this continuity of government. I've interviewed, uh, um, excuse me, what's his name? Garrett Graff, author of Raven Rock, Site R. Yes. It, it's, it's from FDR through present day, whenever it was published, I think 2019. Site R, the Greenbrier Hotel, Cheyenne Mountain, the Orders of Succession, continuity of government, continuity of constitution, the first, the primary, the secondary, the tertiary, the quaternary, all the layers have buttoned up, sealed up, and they've got all these laws written on the, They've got them on the shelves, ready to take off suspension of the Constitution, FEMA camps, round up potential dissidents for every imaginable scenario. And I've always been wildly interested in it. Um, I've read that book. I've read Raven Rock several times. I've interviewed the author. Twice. Are you aware that on January 6, 2021, COG was implemented? I don't doubt it. I didn't know that. I know that it. And you know, that it's it's interesting because. It's a central factor that day that's never reported in the press. It was in that. one news story, I think, on the day that it happened. And then uh, recently, uh, Carol Lenig and I brought out this book, uh, I Alone Can Fix It, which is a detailed study of the, last, the, the end of the Trump era. And uh, it just records in a matter-of-fact way that the uh, leaders of Congress were taken to Fort McNair, which is uh, in the southwest corner of Washington, 
and it says in the text that that is a uh, the place designated by COG continuity of government for the withdrawal of Congress in the case of a national emergency. Well, that was very relevant to what happened that day because the congressional leaders were taken to Fort McNair, but a car then came for Vice President Pence and it was going to take him to Andrews Air Force Base, which would have meant that he would have been totally separated from the congressional leaders, which would have stopped anything developing on that day. And so it, it's a matter of great historical importance that Mike Pence, told by his Secret Service agents to get into the car that was going to take him away, refused to go. And uh, I just throw that in as a footnote. We should I, really talk about uh, COG back on 9-11. But, I, uh, I didn't know that. I knew that um, I've interviewed, I've interviewed, uh, and I, I, I just, I had another podcast at three. I just pushed it back till four. So you and I can really flesh this out. So we, let, let's, we'll take our time. I knew that I've interviewed Will Arkin before, and he talks about, um, I think he's a 20-year Army intelligence officer veteran, uh, veteran, has a lot of great books, most notably The Generals Have No Clothes, but he's also written On That Day. Uh, he's written History in One Act. Both both are about 9-11. On that I day, cite him. I cite him quite I, a lot. I know. I, I know. I know. That's why I'm bringing <laughs> him up. I've interviewed him several times. He's got some other great books, uh, Unmanned, about drone warfare. But he actually talks about in – I'm trying to – On That Day is a, a fictional take. It's It's his take. Uh, history in one act is the actual is just the actual events of that day there was there was a to this day it hasn't been verified which um which craft it was or what was in the aircraft but there was a cessna that flew from where delta force is headquartered to the white house on 9-11 or excuse me to washington dc on 9-11 and we know about the uh, the shutdown orders, taking down all the planes in the sky. And then there was there were some exceptions. Well, we had we had Air Force One, we had the E four B Doomsday planes, but there was also a lot of crop dusters which didn't have radios or anything. I think George Bush is quoted as saying, "I never knew how many crop dusters were in America until 9-11. <laughs> but there was a Cessna that went from where Delta Force is headquartered to DC, and it flew back that night. And it's never been it's never been reported in. Mr. Arkin, um, he and I talked about it. The sort of hypothesis is a while ago that I believe we agreed on is Delta Force being Delta Force. And I've interviewed some Delta Force members. Their logic was supposedly, what if the Secret Service has been compromised? What if Delta Force needs to go get the president? So they flew and came back. Obviously, they didn't. But continuity of government on 9-11, Mr. Arkin also talks about in the, the last chapter of The Generals Have No Clothes, a continuity of government was actually, it didn't officially start, but they started to turn the dial that way in, I think, March of 2020 with COVID. They uh, they quietly, I think, Secretary of Defense Mark uh, Esper put out a six-point plan. They, I did not know this. Yes, I did not know about the Delta Force, but you haven't mentioned the EC-4B uh, which was the, over the, the over the White House, 
over the White House on that day. Oh, yeah. Oh, the Doomsday and, Plane. And it was uh, one of the new, I think it was CNN, one of the news agencies actually reported it and then deleted their own yeah. report. Yeah. Uh, because this is uh, this is the sort of thing you're not supposed to talk about. No. no. And uh, I think we should really go back, if we're going to talk about continuity of government, under that name, it, the, the programs go way back, of course, uh, to every to Roosevelt, really, mm-hmm. certainly Eisenhower, but um, uh, the uh, with the election of Reagan, he uh, appointed a committee, and on the Eisenhower model, the Eisenhower started this. If you're going to try and make the idea is that America might be suffer an atomic attack on Washington, yeah. which would decapitate government. So you have to plan for its survival. In that case, it's a legitimate project. Devolution. And uh, Eisenhower said we should have private people there as well as government people because we might lose all the government people and that brought in the the media for example the president of cbs was on an early committee and flash forward now to reagan he sets up a committee in 1981 and uh, two of the people he puts on that committee came i think really very much to dominate that committee and one of them was uh, Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld, who at the time was only a congressman. And the other one was Dick Cheney, who was chairman of C- uh, the CEO of uh, Halliburton, which is the lead uh, petroleum support agency. And these two people planned for the suspension of government. And it, it sort of should have hit headlines in 1987. That was the year I was in Washington. And Congressman North was being uh, grilled by the Iran-Contra committee. And uh, Congressman Jack Brooks asked him the question, is it true, sir, that you have been planning, you have been working with a committee that is planning for the suspension of the U.S. Constitution? And at that moment, his lawyer got up and objected. And the most surprising was that the chairman of the of the committee, who was in, was uh, uh, Cong- uh, Senator Inouye from Hawaii, who was mm-hmm. a left leaning Democrat, yep. said, "We can't go into that here." Yeah, yeah. Which was uh, in a way corroborating. <laughs> That it had happened. <laughs> is this should, is this not worthy of a headline that Oliver North is planning for suspension of the U.S. Constitution? Well, the New York Times they were running every word that was said in the committee, and I think on page twenty-three or thereabouts, they had this brief exchange, including the whole thing being shut down. And oh, it it ended with Anoyi said we would have to go into that in executive session. And there's never been any record of whether there was such an executive session or not. <laughs> I, I very much doubt that there was because COG was something at a higher level than mere congressional oh, yeah. investigating committees. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, all of this um, 
you know, you could have said that uh, Rumsfeld was still in the government when he was a congressman, but by the 1990s, he was chairman of the big pharma company, G.D. Searle. And uh, so you had two men now not in government, and the Times ran a story, I think, in 1994, that these plans had ceased. And if that was true on the level that they were no longer planning to deal with an atomic attack, but the, it suggested that the committee no longer was in existence, and that wasn't true, that they, they continued in existence right up until uh, Bush was elected, and he well Bush showed well he uh, when he was a, can, a candidate he uh, asked uh, Dick Cheney to find a suitable vice president and Dick Cheney decided in his wisdom that the best vice presidential candidate would be Dick Cheney so he became the vice president. And then Donald Rumsfeld, who had been the other big man on the COG committee, became the defense Secretary, secretary. Defense. And then the first thing we can say about uh, what happened on 9-11 was uh, because one of the things that is obvious about a COG plan is if the president's in one place, you put the vice president somewhere mm -hmm. else. Yes. And right after 9-11, for I think three months, uh, Dick Cheney went into one of those hollowed out mountains that were part of COG planning together with a staff of about 100 people. So what was he doing for those three months? Well, of course, we don't know because yeah. it was COG. But we do know that all kinds of new laws came out. Uh, uh, and Well, I won't go into the post thing. Let's come back now to what did happen on 9-11. Uh, the first thing is we don't know when Cheney came into the, uh, the operations room under the, the White House. Yeah. He gave two accounts of it. The first one, which I think was the honest one, uh, he said to Tim Russert on, on television that he came in essentially about 8.06. And then uh, the later one that he he's never quoted directly, but it, it's based on an interview that Newsweek did with him months later, uh, that he came in no much later, almost an hour later. This is a matter of crucial importance well, because all the big decisions were made in that hour, and they were made in the absence of Bush himself, who was down in Florida. Well, they were made by Cheney and Rumsfeld. And what we do know from the 9-11 Commission report, which is both... Uh, very useful because it's very detailed in particulars and also uh, a really a cover-up because it 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 down it it mentions COG. It admits that it was implemented. You know, when I my first book about 9-11, no, it was this book I get, the one you like, reviewer said Scott speculates that COG was implemented. I'm not speculating. That is a fact out of the 9-11 Commission report. It is a known and, fact. 
And the footnote is even more interesting because it says that uh, C, when it says that COG was implemented, it said uh, uh, that uh, the chairman and the executive director of the committee were uh, looked into this matter, but they, this was not shared with the 9-11 Commission at large. So in other words, the 9-11 Commission wasn't being alerted to this central fact about 9-11, which is just how powerful <laughs> the cover-up procedures are. And I will tell you something else. COG is implemented when there is an emergency, and an emergency was implemented ex post facto for 9-11. Now, one of the post-Watergate reforms was when, when they discovered that, in fact, America had been in a state of emergency ever since the Korean War. Yeah. And the Bobby Kennedy, as attorney general, discovered this by accident, hadn't known was in the state of emergency. Senator Church and the uh, Senate com uh, Water Watergate Committee came up with a reformed National Emergencies Act, which says that if you proclaim an emergency, it will be in power for a year and it will only be extended if the president extends it. And the second thing they said was that meanwhile, Congress must review it and either terminate it or allow it. And uh, the, well, again, most people may not be aware of this, but every president, and that now includes President Biden, Democrats as well as Republicans, Obama as well as Bush and Trump, all of them are continuing the state of emergency, which was declared right after 9-11. Why? And then the second thing is Congress is supposed to review it. And it never has. And way back in 2008, a, uh, a former congressman and I launched an appeal on television. People go to your congressman and say, why aren't we getting a congressional review of the state of emergency? And I got, nothing happened, uh, but I did get feedback from somebody in some state like Michigan or Indiana, I forget where, but they said, the congressman told us that that provision no longer is applied because it was overridden by, guess what, continuity of government. <laughs> so we are getting continuity of government, but it's not democratic government. That's a continuity of the deep state. Hey, Mr. Scott, I'm going to pause recording. I got to run to the restroom real quick. Okay, I'll be right back. Sure. And we are resumed. And as I just explained to Mr. Scott, uh, how uh, this podcast should indeed be sponsored by Depends because <laughs> I would take less breaks. Um, but it seems that the continuity of government is more of a continuity of deep state. And I have you read Raven Rock by Garrett Graff or listened on Audible? I'm not, I think that you probably know as much as it would have in it, but I think you would find it fascinating. It really fleshes out all of the intricacies of continuity of government and how you mentioned uh, Senator Inouye coming in and saying, like, we can't discuss that. There's another interesting thing about, um, so some of the bunkers in the, what are the, in the, uh, what, are, what are the mountains? Canocton, Catoctin, um, yeah. FDR had a retreat. 
some of the like uh, series of bunkers because there's a lot more than NORAD and Raven Rock. They call it the relocation arc because there are so many. They had um, they had almost like missile silos up to- above them, you know, yes. but not for missiles. What would happen is after a nuclear blast, they would open up and an array of att- antennas would go out. And it's so that they could, and other bunkers would do the same thing. They'd all stick their antennas up. And they had multiple antennas underground. So if there was another nuclear blast and they got vaporized, you'd put up another one. Oh my God. The company that was responsible for it, and they had to keep it within one company because it was otherwise, the, it, it was so classified as we're talking about. They didn't want it leaking out. So they just chose one company, right. much like the government chose. Yeah, you couldn't put this out for bid. Obviously. No, 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 no. Well, much like World War II, when they had EG&G do all the slow motion uh, cameras for the atomic testing, they just kept it within EG&G because there was, yeah. we can't have this getting out. Well, AT&T was actually going up against the DOJ in the 70s, and they were going to be broken up because they had monopoly status. And the Pentagon stepped in and said, actually, <laughs> We can't do that, and we can't tell you why, but they're really, really <laughs> And so it was sort of a, you can see like another puzzle piece. You go, oh, there's something. They can't right. tell you what it is, but I can tell you that I can't tell you. So just another kind of tidbit. Well, if, if we're doing tidbits, uh, I don't just to, uh, I, I know we should zero in. No, no, on, no. It's no, the, the best conversations right, gonna, are the I'm ones going that to enlarge out. it a bit. That one of the interesting things that's unexplained about the Kennedy assassination <laughs> is that the equivalent of the EC4B back then, I forget, it was a, perhaps an EC4, but it was a, a similar plane, which was a, a kind of control station for in the event that the ground is has been lost you control Air, airborne the air. for everybody uh, listening in e4b it, it, it was observed over texas in the area of dallas at the time that kennedy was shot while he and, was yes Uh-oh. and i don't pursue that because there's no, nothing to pursue but I do make the argument in my book, Dallas. Uh, you, I don't know what you, how many of my books you've read. Just wrote to 9-11, but I imagine that but, will be the next one I read. Uh, no, I guess maybe it's in, I'm not sure if it's in the American Deep State or Dallas 63. Or no, I, the first place I do it is the, the reissued uh, American war, uh, the war conspiracy. Uh, which the 2008 edition, I I come up with similarities between the Kennedy assassination and 9-11. And I think I came up with 13. And I've since thought of three more, which are more important than the 13 I had at that time. But there is something called the WHCA, the White House Communications Agency, and that is part of the uh, of the COG system. The mm-hmm. I've had the, on guys from the WHCA. Interesting. Yes. Well, the uh, the Secret Service was using the the White House Communications Agency network when they were in the cars of the motorcade in Dallas. And one of the major mysteries or, or symptoms that the Warren Commission was a cover-up was that they printed the uh, 
the number one Dallas police tape. They printed the number two Dallas police tape because they had two different channels for the police department. They printed the police tape from the Dallas sheriff from the Dallas County sheriffs. But where is the tape that the Secret Service was using? It's never alluded to, and uh, it was obviously there. And then uh, beyond that, they, uh, I, I don't think I'll go into the second one, which is more important, but so complicated, it would, I, I think it would lose the interest of our thing. But there was a, uh, a Army Reserve Agency, which uh, picked the uh, translator for Marina, who we know from the Secret Service's only own recording of what was going on, he was mistranslating what she said. It was going to look as if Oswald had used a gun he had got from the Soviet Union. That was what I call the phase one story about Kennedy being assassinated, a false story that the Russians or the Cubans did it, which justified the phase two story. No, Oswald did it, lone assassin and not who, yes, it's true, he had been to Russia and he tried to go to Cuba, but he's a very marginal figure. And many people, including Ch Chief Justice uh, Earl Warren, were drummed into serving on that commission by in service of another false story that was preferable to the false story that would possibly have launched World War III. So I'll just say that they picked this thing and the man who was head of that commission, he was also head of the Dallas Civil Defense. Well, civil defense is remembered today as a kind of joke because that was school kids getting under their desk to cover. protect them. Birth the turtle. <laughs> but but uh, it, it, it was getting the kind of funding and special planning at that time. It was really part of the uh, civil defense was part of that whole second backup government in the case of the real government. And the head of it played a key role, I'll just stop it at that, uh, uh, on that same day, November 22nd, 1963. So you have the plane, you have the missing uh, WHCA tape, which should have been the first thing they looked at and was never mentioned. So that people are not even, most people who are studying the case, we have people who are studying bullet angles and, the, you know, looking at every frame of the Zapruder film, but they're not thinking about the big evidence that should have been there. You know, I have this theory of the negative template, when you know that something should be there and it's not there, then that's in this area, that's a sign that that's probably what you should be looking at, even though you can't look at it because it's not there. It at least helps define the the problems. The and they, you know, so on 9-11, the big decisions were made between uh, 8.06 and 10 o'clock. And then when you find that the, I think the 9-11 Commission misstates the time of the implementation of, uh, of thing, 
I could get very detailed here, but one of the big things that happened in that time is that Norm, there was one down in the PEOC, the, the, the PEOC. Uh, it's the, it's the cave under the yeah. White House. Yeah. Uh, there was one Democrat there, Norm Mineta. He just died. He was the Secretary of Transportation, and Bush had put one Democrat in his cabinet, and he was there, and he testified, and I'm going to read it. Sure. Uh, thanks to the little break we had, um, <laughs> that the uh, it starts on this page. Um, this is his version of it, and it's a quote. During the time when the plane was coming into the Pentagon, there was a young man who had come in and said to the vice president, the plane is 50 miles out, then the plane is 30 miles out. And when it got down to the plane is 10 miles out, the young man also said to the vice president, do the orders still stand? And the vice president turned and whipped his neck around and said, of course, the orders still stand. Have you heard, heard anything? anything to the contrary? Right. OK, well, see, the word the the 9-11 commission made that go away because <laughs> they, they came up with a, a second version of when Cheney was there by the by Cheney's own first direct statement to Tim Russert on NBC, so it was part, very much part of the public record. He had said he was he, he was already in the chamber, uh, the PEOC by then, but by the second version, he was out and came in at about 9.58. When allegedly the Secret Service agents picked him up by the belt loops and right. bum rushed. Now well, the, 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 they gave him the, the bum's rush. Then there was talk about that he had uh, stopped. He had stopped in a tunnel to use a telephone. Oh, yep. Well, there, you know, that's not going to be an ordinary phone booth painted red no. down in that <laughs> tunnel. <laughs> I'm sure he was on the COG communication system. And you, you, you have, uh, meanwhile, Bush in Florida, uh, he gets the news that a second building has been hit. And he continues for 30 minutes to talk to to school kids about a nursery story about a goat. Yeah. And then they get in the car. And according to uh, the news stories, they dash to the airport. They get into the plane and the plane set, sets off so steeply that people haven't even got their seatbelts tied yet. The classified. But in fact, system. there's one version that says that they were on the they were on the they were for on the ground for ten minutes, and Bush was on his phone, and that is the time when Cheney is on his phone, and then when we turn now to Donald Rumsfeld, he also his account is that when he heard the news, he went out and helped put people on stretchers. Yeah. This the is a man he ran outside and open. Yeah. He was helping. This with is the, the debris. man who's the head of the defense force. We may be under attack and, and the secretary of defense goes out to put people on stretchers. No, he's not where he should have been. He's somewhere else. But Cheney and Rumsfeld both say that they did confer by 
phone. I think all three of them were talking by phone on the COG network. Yeah. And of course, we will never get a record. But you know, the um, I do an elaborate, you probably know it better than me in my book, Analysis, that there's something about the phone calls they do record that don't compute and would only make sense if there had been other phone calls involved yeah. that are not being recorded because the 9-11 Commission in its patriotic sense of duty is not investigating the COG aspects of 9-11, yeah. even though they're central. Yeah. Even yeah. though they concede that they were involved and... Uh, Everything that they did do, all these emergency responses, all these new laws that came out, the new secret plan, uh, the, for, it was a 10-year plan for mass incarceration of Americans. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, that is something I think that came out of uh, Station R, the hollowed out mountain with Cheney and his hundred people. They budgeted, I think, 400 million for that in one single year. So this was a big plan. But why what, do we... What year was that that Cheney did that? Do you remember? Well, of course, this is not Cheney. I mean, the, 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 we can't link Cheney to the... It's in the book. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember. You want to go? If you want to stop the thing, I'll. Get, no, no, I'll... no, 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 no. We'll 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 keep going. Well, okay. I was going to say because actually, just kind of a coincidence. Just the other day, I interviewed a guy that was in the CIA Special Activities Division. Are you aware of what the Special Activities Division is? It's. No, I'm it's, not. I, I'm not up to date on the CIA. Uh, I know about the CIA in the fifties yeah. and sixties well, and seventies. I think it was actually created under. Uh, the SAD, the Special Activities Division, was actually created under Eisenhower, but it remained Oops. highly classified. For so, the point is, is it's the real life Black Ops. They recruit from Delta Force and SEAL Team Six. They're the best. There's only a hundred members. I've actually ah. interviewed several of them, and there are multiple branches: Ground Branch, Air Branch, Maritime. I had on a guy the other day who was actually I mentioned continuity of government, and he said that he was actually involved in a training exercise in Raven Rock for several weeks and i'm trying to line up the times now i'm like uh-oh uh-oh uh. just that just that was just something that crossed my mind but much like if the e4 that's another thing i didn't know was that the doomsday plane was and for everybody listening what the e4b is the doomsday plane is although the although air force one has tons of communications capabilities and it's emp proof the e4b is specifically for it's an airborne pentagon and we have a we have a whole fleet of them. I think we have four or five. And there are times during the Cold they're War. They said off at Air Force uh, Base, yeah, head of strategic and air command. That's where Bush went. Yep. on nine eleven. Yep, yep. Cur Curtis Le Curtis LeMay's command center. That's where he went. The author Ray of Raven Rock, Garrett Graff, who I had on here, he actually got to go out there. He got special permission to go out there, and he oh actually gosh. he walked down the exact staircase that Bush did on nine eleven. He said it's a uh, there was an alter there's an alternative entrance. You have the main air base, but then there was a because you have alternative entrances and exits to nuclear bunkers in case something gets collapsed. And he said he was brought out there by like a military liaison or chauffeur, whoever. He says they go out and they're just in this field and it's just kind of a bunch of brush and everything. And they're just kind of out in the middle of nowhere. You know, the base is way off in the distance, and all of a sudden 
this whole team of uh, special forces gets up and they're all covered in camouflage. They're just guarding that 24 seven. And he gets to go and walk down this and he go and he didn't say he goes, it was a long ways down all the okay. way down to the base. I'm going to tell you something about the consequences of 9-11 that day. It's not in the road to 9-11 because I only figured it out much later. But uh, Ashcroft that day, one of the the similarities between uh, the Kennedy assassination and 9-11 is that so many people were not in what not in Washington when those two events happened. Nearly all the cabinet when Kennedy was killed were on their way to Japan and had to come back. And so I started looking at the people who were not in Washington on 9-11. One of them was Ashcroft, who I think had gave a talk in Chicago, and he got on the plane to come back. And Cheney got on the phone with Ashcroft and said, you can't go back to the Department of Justice, we have proclaimed uh, continuity of government, and that you so you have to go somewhere else. And I think they wanted him to land outside Washington, but he ended up in any case, I think maybe at FBI headquarters. But the important thing is not in the Department of Justice. And meanwhile, uh, Cheney's uh, legal sidekick, Addington, Mm -hmm. uh, they have to they want to proclaim all kinds of new laws very quickly. Can't wait. Can't wait for Ashcroft to come back. Has to be done right away. So they're getting a guy who's only been in. He's at a relatively low level uh, and his name is John Yu. And he happens to be somebody who agrees with Cheney about the importance of (laughs) prerogative powers, that there's too much democracy. And so they set up connection with John Yu. There's four levels or three levels between him and the attorney general. Two of them, I think, had not yet been appointed. Ashcroft himself was not there. So you're talking to somebody who had been in government for less than a year. He's my colleague out here. I've debated him. I I know him. And he's, you know, a very smart guy. No questions on you. But he has uh, some very primitive ideas about the Constitution, which he has defended in a book and which uh, he was the perfect man to work with Addington and Cheney on that day. And the only excuse, the the only reason they were working with them was because 9-11 had been used to prevent Ashcroft from returning to his office. Mm, There's a lot of, yeah, a lot of things flying together there. And I think, I think that one of the most interesting things, and let's play devil's advocate going back to Eisenhower. They had, they had a lot of draft legislation on the uh, metaphorical and literal shelf. And it was that in the case of an atomic decapitation strike, these would be taken off and signed into, they had all these mock things where a lot of times all you had to do was replace the name of the president because they would just maintain throughout the uh, different cabinets or administrations. Um, So that's just, but it does seem that Cheney, and uh, Rumsfeld really had a had a specific interest in continuity of government. Can I tell you why? Well, because what they saw as, whereas Eisenhower or, or whoever saw as a continuity of government in the case of an atomic 
decapitation strike, you can see Cheney and Rumsfeld look at it more as uh, in the case of an emergency, you can suspend the Constitution. So now they're taking the emergency plan and perhaps fomenting an emergency to suspend the Constitution as opposed to the Constitution being suspended in light of an emergency. Well, I think they were doing it, and certainly in the Cheney's case, Cheney had had been the chairman of Halliburton. Yeah. And after the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, American oil in the 90s, everyone, including Cheney, believed that the world's biggest oil reserves were in Central Asia. They're not less keen on that idea now, but it led to uh, Chevron, ExxonMobil, all investing big time in Kazakhstan. Cheney was also, and Rumsfeld, both of them were on the project for the new American century, which said we need to have a more (laughs) forward strategy where we have bases all over the world. We actually got bases in Iraq and Afghanistan by the shortcut of declaring war there. Why was that so important for the oil companies? Because they had put tens of millions of dollars of investment into Kazakhstan. And if America did nothing, there would be only one army nearby that would be the Russian army uh, on the border uh, of of Kazakhstan. But now uh, you had US troops in Iraq, you had US troops in Afghanistan, and from the Russian perspective, and I know this because I may lose credibility here, but I was invited to a drug conference in Russia, and I heard people voicing to me the the Russian uh, paranoia, if you want to call it, about being surrounded on all on all sides by U.S. troops. We could, uh, and for the oil companies. There, they were now knew that uh, Kazakhstan could not be simply bullied by Russia. There would be American bullies to the south and to the east who would counter the Russian thing. I believe that that was Cheney's. Uh, Absolutely. All along, and uh, and if we, you know, if if, there, if we could talk, start talking about pipelines and oil investments, Azerbaijan was being developed at that time, and there was a pipeline that uh, happened to go through Bosnia near Kosovo, and then we had wars in Kosovo and in Bosnia, and America intervened. <laughs> That's a whole other story, but even the present. War in F- in uh, Ukraine in, in Ukraine, which of course is just a proxy war for America. We're certainly fighting it with huge budgets Absolutely. and huge profits for the military-industrial complex. Absolutely. There is the question of the oil that uh, offshore oil in the Black Sea, which the Turks want to in, in develop and which the Russians want to develop. Um, and that is the, the usually in all the recent wars, Bosnia, Kosovo, and now Ukraine. Look for the pipeline that's involved. And in they yeah. are uh, anyway. <laughs> well, you said you wanted to stop around about now. No, 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 no. I actually pushed my next podcast back by an hour so we could have a little more time. If that's okay with you. 
okay, I, I, I'm going to run out of juice pretty soon because I'm 93, but we'll go a bit you, longer. You tell me when you run out of juice and we'll cut it off. What I wanted to say was Private Empire, a book by Steve Call, C-O-L-L. That's yeah. a great book about the history of ExxonMobil. And yes. how, yeah, much like Smedley Butler wrote about almost a century ago, however our oil interests move, we always have some reason we have a private, yeah. we have the private empire, Exxon, Chevron, whatever, standard, uh, standard oil. And then we find a reason to put some military bases nearby in the off chance that, you know, if we're going to be sinking tens of billions of dollars into these refineries and these transportation, uh, I guess, superstructures and infrastructures, not just getting, it's not like we're getting bananas or rubber, but we're getting oil, the very heart of the U.S. military, well, then why wouldn't the U.S. military make sure that the interests go unmolested, to to quote Smedley Butler? And what you said about being surrounded, that's a very real fear, because look back to Abel Archer in 1983, that Cold War exercise we did where we scaled up right to the edge of Russia, and Russia thought that it was under the guise of a uh, of a war drill or a war game yes. that we were actually going to attack. A lot of people don't know that in 1983, we, it's been argued that we got closer to nuclear war than we did in October 1960. You know, it's a miracle we got through those years. We it's did. insane. There, there was, a, in the Cuban Missile Crisis of 62, there was a Soviet submarine. Yeah. And uh, uh, yeah. they saw an American, and they, they, they misinterpreted a sign that, that there'd been a nuclear blast, and the yeah. commanders, the submarine said, shoot, shoot that nuclear missile. And he and said, the, no. The, the ordinary guy was an ordinary guy, said, I I'm not going to start World War Three, and he didn't shoot it. And the world th- should thank that and guy. And he was so dishonorably we, we scraped scraped through like that. But fast forward to 2022. Now this is a time where, because of climate change, even the oil companies accept that there's going to be a shrinking demand for oil. That makes the competition for markets even more intense than it was before. And the oil companies had the American government online to oppose this big Russian Nord Stream 2 pipeline coming down under the Baltic Sea that was going to bring an enormous amount more Soviet oil into Western Europe. And... uh, in peace, times of peace, America could not get Germany to uh, refuse. After all, I think they helped finance it. It was it was a very very major undertaking, and uh, it. It, it was going to go into effect. It's essentially finished. It's waiting there to, to start up. But now we've put in these sanctions because of the war in Ukraine. And Europe has been saved from the threat of Soviet petroleum uh, by the grace of this war, which is killing so many people. It's a horrible war. And I don't I I do think that Putin was provoked into declaring it. Absolutely. I don't think that excuses Putin for a second. I think nope. this is one of the worst governmental decisions made in the new century. And uh, and we may all 
may, we may all have to uh, pay the price for it. We're still already paying the price for it in some ways, but I mean that this could become, still could become a much bigger war uh, because uh, it could easily be stopped if uh, Zelensky would just say, okay, Russia, you can have the Donbass. They speak Russian there. They don't want... At least a large number of the people there, we don't know how many, don't want to be part of the Ukraine. Let's find out who wants to secede and let them secede. Let the UN have a plebiscite. It'd be very easy to end this war, but it's not going to happen yeah. because uh, the main thing that uh, Zelensky says, uh, you know, they did have serious peace talks about about a month ago, and they failed. And ever since then, Zelensky, practically the first thing he says is, we stand for the integrity of Ukraine. We are not going to give up an inch of Ukraine. And behind that, you know, maybe Zelensky himself cares. I don't know. He comes, he's a Russian speaker himself from that part of Ukraine who got his career established. He became famous as a Russian-speaking comedian yeah. on Russian television. And then uh, he's then uh, almost as a joke, I think, ran as president of the Ukraine. And he's been, and he got what nobody else has been able to do, 73% of the vote in Ukraine. So he did represent for the Ukraine for the first time to be a unified country. Yeah. But I think that's gone to his head. Because the fact of the matter is, you can draw a line across Ukraine from Kharkiv southwest to Moldova. And historically, the northwest part of it has been part of Ukraine, and the southeast part of it has had a very checkered career. It was Alans, it was Khazars, it was Turks. Starting in the 18th century, it was Russia, and they created a new province, Novorossiya. But it, one thing it has never been is under the control of Kiev until 1918 in the chaos of the breakup of Russia. And you had momentarily two competing um, Ukrainian republics. The one recognized by the West survived and got its present borders, which is, includes what is always been Ukrainian, what has been all these other things, most recently Russian. And in the elections that they've held, they had an election in 2004, and the part northwest of this linguistic frontier voted uh, Western, and the part to the southeast voted for the Russian candidate. Same thing happened in 2014. The same thing happened in the 2019 election, but the, the runoff election overruled that. Um, and, you know, culturally, it's very important that the, it's not just that they spoke, speak different languages. They're all Orthodox, but in the Western part, the Orthodox, and there, there are all kinds of Orthodox in Ukraine. There are at least three competing Orthodox churches but the important one in the West is what they call the Greek Catholic Orthodox Church of Ukraine, which is in communion with Rome. Mm. And that goes back historically to the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which included Poland 
which was very, very dominated by Rome. The, the Counter-Reformation was very big in Poland. And that it's that time you get this church, this Orthodox church. And I, I've seen an, an Orthodox Jesuit, which is a, is a kind of oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. But no, the big chunk of the Western church looks to Rome for spiritual guidance, and it looked to Warsaw for political guidance. And on the other side, people deeply religious looked to Constantinople for guidance and later to Moscow, because now there's the Supreme Patriarch is in, is in Moscow. Um, and they look to Moscow uh, for their political guidance. Although Kiev, you know, is very proud of the fact that the first Russian state was the Kiev state. It stretched from the Baltic right down almost to the Caspian, to the Black Sea, but not quite. Because that last little bit was, I think, Allen's at the time, a, a tribe we've forgotten about now. Um, just... So we're dealing with a, a historically divided Ukraine, and I would say it would be so easy to say, okay, some of that, they speak Russian, they want to go back to Russian, let them go, let, let them decide. And it's not going to happen because Zelensky is opposed to it. And I think America has been declaring more and more openly that they want this war to Absolutely. go on Absolutely. because they're saying uh, in public that uh, it's very important to have a democratic de Ukraine. Ukraine is more democratic than, the, than Russia, but not very much more democratic. They have oligarchs, too, and I don't want to get into a lecture about uh, oligarchs, well, but... There is an oligarch behind Zelensky, and he's also behind the Azov Battalion. Kolomoisky. Well, you know his name. Good for Gen you. General Kolomoisky. Well, I've had on uh, investigative journalist George Webb tens of times, and uh, he's been following this story for the past like four years, actually. And uh, he's actually just went and traveled over to Ukraine just the other week. But uh, yeah, General Kolomoisky. Right. He's got a well, ton we, of land in the United States. It may be that in retrospect, we will talk about the history of this decade as the history when the oligarchs of all the countries got together because I think the oligarchs of America don't want Soviet oil in Western Europe and this oligarchs of Russia don't want uh, European influence in Russia because it does indeed pose a threat of democratization, they'd much rather see a silk road uh, ec economy uniting Russia with China, because these are autocrats that you can rely on to do what you want. You yeah. don't have to deal with the people. And so this war suits the oligarchs of Russia, and it, it, it suits at least some of the oligarchs of the West. It suits some but not all of the oligarchs of Ukraine. And uh, and that then we would get into deep politics, which is another book of mine, which we, we can talk about some other time. I'd love to. I think that we want a war at your most base level money, right? We're giving you can I mean, it's like clockwork. You can see it coming from a mile away. We give Ukraine so many javelin missiles and then all of a sudden, hey, guys, we got to build more javelin missiles. So that's the base right. level. 
That was like the end of the Vietnam War when yeah. we were losing so many B-52s. Yeah. Boeing didn't mind that we were no, losing. Hey, Bell Helicopter was like, hey, we'll, right. we'll be making them. It's still classified on May, Wednesday, May 11th, 2022. It is still classified how many helicopters we lost in Vietnam. Right. Yeah, but I think we want it for a couple of reasons. I think that Biden is getting Biden is getting what Trump wanted, but he's just he but he's being able to frame it another way. And that's the bolstering, the re the tightening, the the yeah, the the refortification of NATO. Trump did it in a more yes. brash way. You guys gotta pay your part. Biden's getting it in a in a smoother political way. Hey, look, the Soviet bear is still alive. You guys gotta start paying up. So that's one thing they like. I think we like it because the reality is, is Russia is still an old nemesis. We're seeing Russia get clobbered. Why wouldn't we want a nice little proxy war right on their border? And also, yeah. I think China wants it because China historically has been the kind of on the teat throughout the Cold War. They were on the teat of Mother Russia. And now the dynamics have changed. I think China wants, and this is all just my opinion, I think China wants a weakened Russia. So Russia yes. will come running home to China and China. It says, wants hey, to weaken both. Yes, this war is weakening both powers, yes. both Russia and America. And uh -huh. that, of course, is in the interest of China. Of and course I think it is. I think China wants Russia, as we're already seeing with the, uh, the swift banking system. They're saying, hey, you can come on our banking system. We'll help you out with this. You can still use the ruble here. I think what the we're war gonna... the war is making that accelerating that process. Yes, it's it's accelerating Russia to run into the bosom of China. And what does China want in return? Hey, we'd love to have some of that sweet, sweet fertilizer, all that our for yeah, that all that fertilizer, all that timber in the north, all that natural yeah. gas. Our growing population could use it, all that wheat. We'd like it too. And I think the America, I think we know that China's doing that. And I think we like that. Because what that's doing is that is bringing us right back to 1945. We're going, ooh, this is good. America and Europe versus another communist threat. We can milk this for another 45-year Cold War. Trillions and trillions of dollars, baby. I think that's exactly what's happening. Is we are seeing the we're seeing the we're going back to the Cold War. We're going, oh hell, we're yeah. going back into a bipolar world. Yep, and I'm afraid. That, uh, you know, we've had, an ex you know, the world is getting better in some ways. It's getting better it, at avoiding wars. In, in most ways. Uh, it, uh, uh, but I do not believe if you can, if you, if you destroy the trade links between Russia and Europe and America, that uh, you're going to have a stable world in which we, we do not eventually see a war pop up in some unlikely place. It could be Indonesia. It could be anywhere. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, I've been very deeply depressed, frankly, in the last couple of months because I spent my lifetime, I, I was, I missed being fighting in World War II by being only 16 when it ended. The class ahead of me in my high school they went into the army and they were part of the occupation of Germany. The class before that went into the Air Force and two or three of them were shot down. I, two of my teachers were killed in that war. And I just, my whole life, I think we have a chance now. We have peace. We have to make sure we can preserve it. 
and I've dedicated my life to that. It's made me nonviolent. It has made me explore spirituality, which I think is something which the world has um, forgotten about, but has the resources to return to. And I would like to see more and more people are talking about a post-secular world in which we'll still have very smart atheists, so we're not going to try to convert them. We just want them to tolerate the fact that there will be some very smart religious people that they have to coexist with. And if we can get that kind of coexistence, then we can have a better world. But I'm very frightened that uh, if we don't solve problems like uh, climate change, and so on, that there will be, first of all, there's going to be food shortages. And that is can very easily be the, the cause of violence, and violence can lead very quickly to war. The so-called Arab Spring really grew out of a drought that caused uh, people to be starving. And uh, somebody in Tunisia, we've maybe most people have forgotten this. South yes. Malaysian. Self-immolation because of because of the his food cart. That wouldn't let I don't sell. know. You know, the Ukraine is a breadbasket for Africa, and uh, the, if the crops are not planted and harvested in Ukraine this year, people in Africa are almost certainly going to starve, and that will lead to disturbances in Africa. The sort of thing which leads to unrest leads to intervention, intervention leads to war. And uh, I'm just terrified, frankly, that the, the, good, the, 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 the good path, which is there, which in the long term, I civilization has been bent on for millennia, is I think very much threatened by the bad path will break down which will be, you know, we've had breakdowns in the past which were necessary, but I started the, the show ages. by saying the, the Dark Ages was a necessary breakdown. I think the breakdown of, of Christendom, not Christianity, but Christendom around 1500 and the creation of new religions and, uh, and all kinds of things was a necessary breakdown in the short run. It was the Thirty Years' War, which was the most horrible war up to that time. But of course, small in the light of the wars that we've managed to come up with since. Um, so the bad path has been growing along with the good path. And I'm, I, I'm not so terribly pessimistic today. I'm, most days I'm optimistic, but I've, I've had a... I, I'm very concerned that this Ukrainian war is going to go on much longer than it should. And what really worries me is it would be so easy to stop and nobody wants, Macron tried to stop it, but he, he got the brush off from from uh, Putin at the end of a 30 foot long table. Yeah, which yeah. Is, <laughs> I saw that, yeah. It's a symbol, I think, of what, how interested Putin was in Macron. It could be stopped. It's not going to be stopped. And that's a symptom that there's something very deeply wrong in the world as we have it today. I think I'm going to stop. I'd love to talk sure. to you again. But, I'd love uh, it too. I think that's enough for one show, don't you? I think it was wonderful. I was going to I was going to say kind of on a closing mark on to stay optimistic is it really helps to go back and read, read like the, the presidential like journals of Eisenhower and JFK. 
and just how certain they were that the, the end of the world was just around the corner. And that was 70 years ago. When you go back to Reagan uh, at Reykjavik, you go back yes. to Clinton, you go back to Carter, you go back to, they were all certain the end of the world was just around the corner, yet we keep right. moving forward. So that doesn't mean that it's any less harmful that we're at war right now. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be worried. But I do think that you look back at, back at the Cuban Missile Crisis, you look back at Abel Archer, you look at World War II, you look at 9-11, you look at the 08 financial crisis, you look at COVID, we get through it. And a lot of times we get through by the, 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 just the skin of our teeth, just barely if, slide through. If everybody is aware that we are faced with the, with the threat of nuclear destruction, yeah, on a scale that would make Hiroshima mm-hmm. and Nagasaki look tiny little things. Even the Tokyo bombing was worse than Nagasaki uh, and Hiroshima. Nothing. No, the, what what could happen would be a nuclear winter, and a significant there would be a significant kill off of human beings of everywhere, biosphere. at least in the northern hemisphere. But as long as we're aware of that, there's a hope. The danger is that people will forget that, and then, then, the, then the shit's going to hit the fan. <laughs> and we will end on that. I will, I will send you an. Uh, actually, well, so for everybody listening, the book, the Road to Nine Eleven, is in the description. I'll put your website and all that good stuff in there. I'll let you people look at the cover. There you are, the Road to Nine Eleven. It's a fantastic listen, and it's probably one of the most unique takes I've heard on it. Is the direct intricacies with the continuity of government leading up to it. Um, but Mr. Scott, I'd love to have you on again. Um, thank you very much for coming on. And one second, I will stop. I will stop record. Oops, come on. Come on. Let me stop.